One of the things growing up that I can remember very distinctly is that my mom was uh, in a club where uh, twice a year she would receive one of these very large atlases. For those of you who are a few minutes younger than me, um, you needed those really to find anywhere to go. Uh, In my mom, uh, because I love them, I would open them, I would look through them, look at all the maps and uh, my mom let me uh, uh, kind of arrange and, and plot out our trip to, uh, to Mackinac Island. Uh, she let me plot out the trip to Washington, D.C. And as you can see, I'm standing here this morning. Nothing really went wrong. Now, the problem, though, with maps, even today as we have Google Maps in a number of different ways that we can find our way from here to there, there are a couple of things that maps cannot help you with. One of them is detours. Now, a lot of times, and now again, today, with our electronic maps, we can perhaps get warned about a detour, or maybe it'll show up, maybe it won't. Sometimes they, don't, they aren't there. But when you're just working with a physical map, you can't see that there's a detour in a particular area. But there's a second thing that even with Google Maps or even with electronic applications, there is still another thing that they cannot help you with. And that is the, ob- or the, the problem of drift. What do I mean by that? Well, just a few weeks ago, uh, I was traveling back from Lincoln uh, on the way home. And I have made that trip now because I've been here eight years. I've made that trip, uh, I'm guessing, 50 times. And I was on my way back from Lincoln, and I had to stop and get gas. And I got gas, got back on the expressway, and began to drive. But I got about 20, 25 miles before I realized I was going the wrong way. <laughs> During my college years, the getting to college from my home was about three uh, interchanges, and mostly expressway there. I made that trip a number of different times, and once again, I can recall... There were several times I would stop and get something to eat or get something for gas or get some gas, and then I would find myself going in the wrong direction. And so we can't, even with good maps and good planning, what those things cannot do is help us when it comes to drift. Now, we have been working through Psalm 119, and we have been talking about walking with God. And at the beginning of this psalm, we are told what the psalmist's goal really is. He wants to arrive at a place where he can stand before God and be blameless. He wants to stand before God and be perfectly holy. And he has told us that the road he wants to take to get there, ever since he was a young man, is a road that is filled with obedience to God. Perfect, absolute obedience to God. And as we've worked through this psalm, what we have found out about this journey is that it's really hard. In fact, it's not just hard, it's impossible. And there are a number of reasons why it's impossible. One of the things we've talked about is our neediness. We can't travel that road without some help from God himself. We need God to work in our life in a number of different ways in order for us, beginning with our salvation in Christ, in order to walk that road. But as the psalmist has continued to go on, he has told us, now walking that road also brings about the pressure from outside. That there are enemies, there are people, there are those who would like to pressure us to get off this road and go a different direction or take a different way to get there. And then he tells us about his own sinfulness. As he is trying to get to to God and be blameless, as he's trying to be obedient, he finds that our problems are sins that come from within him. 
then it's not pressure from the outside. It is coming from inside himself. Now, we come to our section, verse 57 to 64, and what I think we're dealing with now is not pressure from the outside. It's not sinfulness from the inside. It is the problem of drift. It is the idea that the Christian perhaps is not struggling again with sin, is not feeling pressure from the outside to change paths. It is not a repetitive sin problem. It is the idea that we have walked in a way and have lost track of where we are going and we have drifted from where we intended to be. I have met with a number of Christians who have come and sat down in my office and have said, Pastor, I don't know how I got here. A year ago, I was maybe teaching Sunday school or I was attending church faithfully and I was reading my Bible every morning and I was doing everything and I don't remember when it happened, but something happened and now I'm here and I never intended to be here. That's the idea of drift and that's the idea that I think we're going to be confronted with here in these verses. And so we are going to talk about keeping from drift. How do we keep from drifting and i want to give you three points this morning number one number one we need to make sure our obedience flows out of our relationship with god we want to make sure that our obedience flows out of our relationship with god i want you to note verse 57 he says god thou art my portion now that word portion is an old testament word we remember, perhaps from your Old Testament history, when the people of God would go into the promised land, uh, they were, the land was portioned out to different tribes, except for the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi is told that their portion is that they get to serve God for generations. Now, the writer here, if we, we think it might be Daniel, it could be David, but either way, neither of them is a Levite. And so what he's saying is, Lord, you are my portion. Of all the things I might have in this life, of all the land that I might be given because of my family's last name or because of my heritage, Lord, you are truly my portion. Now, Psalm 119 is very famous for the fact that it mentions God's word in various ways all through the psalm. The only thing this psalm does more than that is talk about the relationship between the writer and God himself. The personal pronouns are almost three times as many as his references to the word of God. The idea of portion is used multiple times in the book of Psalms. Psalm 16, the psalm just describes God the same way. Lord, you are my portion, and he compares it to having food and drink. In, verse, or in Psalm 73, the writer experiences significant disappointment. He talks about his heart and his flesh are failing. He is downcast, but he encourages and he helps himself. He lifts himself by saying, God, you are my portion. In Psalm 142, the writer is facing attacks from the enemy who want to take his life. And the writer says, Lord, you are my portion in the land of the living. Now, this idea also shows up in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, the Bible says that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. There, the Bible describes this as a down, pay, uh, down payment on a future inheritance, or another way that could be translated is a future portion. 
This is a significant idea. In Psalm 2, we read that there's a prophecy that, that when Jesus returns, his inheritance is the whole earth, all of it. And so what Ephesians is alluding to, that when you are given the Holy Spirit upon conversion, upon putting your faith in Christ, that Holy Spirit is a down payment on the reality of the portion you will share with Jesus Christ. Now, all of this is understood when the writer of Psalm 119 says, I pledge to keep your word. In verse 7, he says, you are my, or 57, he says, you are my portion, and I have said, or I have pledged, I will keep your word. So when he says, I'm pledging to be obedient, I'm pledging uh, to keep the word of God, it is not mechanical. He is not simply, it's not legalism. It is not the idea that he is just going to conform. It is the idea that this is a relationship. Lord, you are my portion. That is why I pledge to keep your word. Now, how do we make sure that our obedience is based on our relationship with Jesus Christ, our relationship with God? Of course, The first way we do that is is understanding that there is no relationship with God outside of faith in Jesus Christ. There must be a profession or confession of faith in Christ in order for there to be a relationship with God. You can come to church. You can dress a certain way. You can not do this and do that. You can keep all manner of rules, but unless the basis of what you are doing is a relationship, the reality is you will drift. Of course, that is the same for a Christian. If you are not maintaining that relationship, you will drift. You might be able to do the same things and go the same places and not do the same things you don't do. But if it is not being driven by a relationship with God, you will drift. Now, that's interesting. The idea, then, is of God's grace. I can only be obedient. I can only do this. I can only pledge this unless God shows me grace. In 1 John, John talks about this idea. He says that, all right, I saw Jesus. He says that uh, I touched Jesus. I heard Jesus. But this is how I know that I know him. This is how I know I have a relationship. This is what the relationship is built on. I obey. So I have a relationship, but my relationship is then reinforced by my obedience. And that's what John's writing to his people. He's saying, this is how you know that you know him. This is how you know you have a relationship with him. Out of that relationship comes obedience, and from that obedience reinforces that relationship. So one of the ways we make sure that we don't drift is make sure that our relationship with God is done by obedience out of what he has done for us. I've told you many, many times, and we've talked about this many, many times. God saved the Hebrew people. He released them from slavery before he gave them the Ten Commandments, relationship before obedience. Number two, the second way we keep from drift is this, making sure the obedience is not being done by the power of the flesh. Notice in verses 58 through 62, it flows right out of verse 57. He says, I pledge to keep your word, and I'm praying, God, you would show me favor or give me grace so that I can keep my promise. 
Then look at verses 59 and 60. He says, and this is where I get the word drift. He says, I, I, I made this pledge, and then I looked down at my feet, and I wasn't where I intended to be. I looked at my feet and realized my feet had taken me the wrong way. In verse 60, he says, then I hastened to go back. I ran. Verse 61 is really interesting because we get the reason perhaps why he found himself on the wrong path. He says in verse 61, he says, the cords of the wicked ensnare me. So let me explain it this way. So he's going along in life. He's walking the path that he wants, he's trying to walk obedience to God so that he can be blameless or holy before God. And he comes and begins to realize he has enemies. He has enemies that are trying, or there are pressures coming from the outside that are trying to entrap him, trying to catch him, if you will. Now think about this as a, from a hunter point of view. If you're trying to catch a bear, for example, where you put a bear trap is where you know the bear has been because bears are very much animals of routine. They come to places where they know their food, where there is food. So you look for the evidence that they've been there before. And so you say, all right, I'm going to trap this bear. And you put your trap out. That's the idea. They had seen him and walk in his holiness. Now, if this is Daniel, we have, well, we get to see where this happens, don't we? Remember about how they made a law? That you could only pray for 30 days, I think it was. You could only pray to a specific God of the Babylonians. And Daniel said, well, I'm not doing that. That law, we were told in the book of Daniel, was entirely for the purpose of trapping him. So what the writer's saying here is, I was walking along and I realized they were trying to trap me. I realized they were trying to send me to the margins. I, I realized they were trying to embarrass me. I, I realized they were trying to hurt me. He's saying, what I did in trying to avoid being hurt is I tried to go down a detour to avoid having to do what is right and being entrapped by what was right. I went a different way. And as a result, because I was trying to keep from getting entrapped, because I was trying to keep from getting hurt, because I was trying not to have to deal with this particular problem, I was drifting. And suddenly I found myself at a place I did not intend to be. And so now what he's saying is this. I looked down at my feet, realized I was not where I was supposed to be, and I hastened back to where I should have been. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk the righteous road. I am going to do the righteous thing. I'm going to do the right thing, even though there are those who are waiting to entrap me. Even though I know that I could possibly get hurt. Even though I know that those people, their sole reason for doing what they're doing is for the purpose of embarrassing me or hurting me or, or trying to get me to change what I am doing. We remind ourselves as Jesus walked this earth, he had an encounter with Satan himself who tried to trap him. We know that Jesus encountered the Pharisees and the religious teachers. And one of the things we're told in the Gospels is they tried to trap him. But then we come to verse 62, and the writer says, At midnight I will rise to praise you. I mentioned this last week. The nighttime in the Psalms has a singular picture. The nighttime is always the darkest time of the day. Darkness is always reflected as the idea, this is when it's dangerous. 
And some of us look out into the world around us and we think things are getting dark. And we can feel perhaps even we can we can just we feel it in our bones, the tension, the problem, the issues. And we say it is dark outside. But the psalmist is saying, you know what, because I am walking the way you want me to walk, I can come into the darkness, I can come into the night and I can rise up and I can still give you praise. In Psalm 23, what we're probably very familiar with, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So the psalm is saying, I went down the wrong path, I hurried to get back, and I made a commitment that even though, even though I could see what was coming in my flesh, in my own wisdom, in my heart, in my own desires, I am going to continue to walk this path. Now, I've mentioned this before. This is not new. But I'm going to take a ministry like VBS just simply because it's around the corner. One of the things that can happen to a church as a whole is that we can do something over and over and over again. And it becomes very easy to do those things in our flesh, in our own wisdom, in our heart. It would be very easy to do things so that we don't get trapped or don't get hurt. We just do it the same way. We don't think through things. And I'm not saying that's what's going on here. I'm just saying it's just a good example of where that can happen in a church. If you want to be fully, if you've done it for years, you're going into VBS fully confident. You got your routine down. Now, I don't say that you were not praying. I'm not saying that, uh, that, that we're, uh, we're not concerned or that we, we don't love these kids. I'm just saying we have an opportunity for drift. Those who go to church again and again and again and, and have faithful in their attendance, which is a wonderfully good thing to have. It can be easy if we are not careful that those things drift and suddenly we're doing all of our ministry, all of our attendance, all of the things that, that we are going to do, we do in our flesh. So what's the answer? How do we keep from doing these things in the flesh? How are our friends who are here this morning, who have probably done this maybe a dozen times already, how are they going to keep from doing this in the flesh? How do we keep from ministering the flesh? How do we keep our relationship with God from becoming all of what we can do by the flesh? The answer is in Romans 13, 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. Maybe let me explain it this way. In my backyard is a pool. Now, about uh, four or five days ago, that pool's pump broke. What that means is that water's not moving. One of the worst things you can have in your yard is stagnant water. What happens in stagnant water? Mosquitoes begin to breed. Now, in pool, where people are going to be in that water, disease can begin to breed. Viruses, bacteria... The water, if the water doesn't move, it means I'm going to have to add, when we finally fix the pump, I'm going to have to add more chemicals because of what happens in stagnant water. I'm going to have to get that pump so that water begins to move and my kids are safe to go swimming. But that's the answer, is that we need to be purposeful in stirring the hearts. Stagnant water is the breeding ground for drift. A stagnant heart is the breeding ground for drift. And we begin to do things in our flesh. 
We begin to think, well, I've got this. I've done it a hundred times before. We need to find a way to stir the water. Maybe for some of us that might mean on Saturday night, instead of doing certain activities, maybe we need to take the time to open up our Bible in a special way or put on a certain kind of music. Me and my family on most Sunday mornings, we put on music to try and stir the heart before we come into worship. Maybe you need to take an index card and write out verses on it that you need to memorize and stick it in your back pocket. And the next time you're waiting for the doctor in the waiting room or you're sitting on that weird paper in the doctor's office, you can pull it out of your back pocket instead of your phone. And you can sit there and you can begin to read that. You can stir the heart. Stagnant water is dangerous. And it's dangerous spiritually because when it becomes stagnant, we begin to do things in the flesh. And we drift. And then number three, the last one. If you don't want to drift, to keep from drifting, make sure that you do not walk this path alone. In verse 63, the writer says to us that the word of God is such a part of his life that it draws him to those who also love the word of God. The term there is one of being bonded together. It is a bonding agent, a glue that is to the companionship. The fear of the Lord, the obedience to God, it is what draws him to other people. It is the idea that because you share in the word of God, because you share in the fear of God, you are walking down the same path. You are not, you are together keeping one another from drifting. We remember a couple of years ago, I had a message and we talked about two women who lived in a city where the, where the people were starving. You might remember this story from Scripture. Can't get any food, it's too expensive, if there's any there to begin with. But these two women, they make a pact. Each of them is going to offer one of their children to eat. The fear of the Lord for them, what bonded them together, the fear, sorry, what bonded them together was the fear of starvation. The writer is saying here, really, the fear of the Lord is what is bonding us together. He says, he follows that by saying, I'm a companion of those who keep your precepts. It is the idea of keeping God's commands. He's talking about thou shalt not lie. I, I like to be with people who fear the Lord enough not to lie. I have those who do not steal, those who honor their mom and dad. But I want to be clear about something. What can happen within the Christian community is not stealing, not lying, and, and honoring your mom and dad are given little attention. And it becomes all about whether or not you send your kids to public school or whether you homeschool. It becomes about, all about whether or not you feed your baby formula or you breastfeed. Or whether you shop at the Gap or don't shop at the Gap. Things that are not found in Scripture, things that we cannot bring out of Scripture, whether or not you watch Star Trek or Star Wars. What is the companionship? What is the thing that blends us together? It is not these central or, or secondary things. Sorry, it's not the secondary things. It is the central things, the things that God has said, things that we can bring out, out of His Word and out of His law. Those are the things that are supposed to bond us together. And we remind ourselves that in Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says, you need to keep that bond. 
implying that there are those who would like to break it. Those who would like to rip it apart. Those who would like you. There is an enemy who would love to find you alone. I have found over the years that nothing encourages a believer like being reminded that they are a part of a group. I used to go to a pastor's conference where the average attendance was ten to 15,000 other pastors. There was simple encouragement by being around those who shared my faith in Christ. Christian conferences, Christian concerts. There is an encouragement in not walking alone. Our friends, again this week, it's a big part of their ministry, is reminding them that, that they don't walk alone. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time. People came from everywhere to hear him preach. Thousands upon thousands would come to hear him preach. Then one year, the denomination of which he was a part of started believing something other than the Bible was God's word. It's called the downgrade controversy. It almost killed Spurgeon. People still came from miles away to hear him. He, his church was still full of thousands of people who came to hear him. But because of the controversy, Spurgeon lost a number of men that he considered to be his close friends. The bond which was not supposed to be broken was ripped apart. And of all the things that happened during the controversy, Spurgeon would speak to the fact that it was losing his companions that broke him. I have personally ministered for years where I had no friends. It's a burden to to, to find people who are out on the mission field who have no ability to fellowship closely, personally with another believer. It is incredibly uh, difficult. No companion in the fear of the Lord. One of the things I rejoice about living here where I do, in this church that I pastor, is I rejoice in the fact that my children have friends who come from families that fear the Lord. As I said, though, if we ever become bonded over anything else, it is not the bondage of the fear of the Lord. And we understand that this bondage is under attack. We understand that they were told that this is a bond that, that the enemy desires to rip apart. There is probably nothing more, more heart-wrenching and nothing that, that just destroys the Christian than having relationships in Christ just be ripped apart. Because we were never meant to walk alone. We were never meant to have a Christian life where we did not fellowship with the local church, where we did not share time with other believers, where we did not regularly keep each other accountable or, or have encouraged one another. We were never meant to walk this alone. So if you are, you find your point, a point in your life where you perhaps circumstances or issues or problems, and you say, you know what, six, seven months ago, I was surrounded by fellow Christians. Now I find myself alone. I am telling you right now, you are in grave danger of drift. While Google Maps might make it hard to get lost today, it doesn't prevent drift. Spiritual drift will come even when there's no outside pressure to turn away. Spiritual drift will come even if there's no great sin happening in your life. Spiritual drift can come even when you're not facing crisis or trauma. 
Spiritual drift comes when we're trying to be obedient outside of a relationship with God. Drift comes because we're trying to do things in the flesh. Drift comes because we're trying to do these things alone. And these things take us down a path that is not the one the psalmist wants us to be on. The path that brings us to obedience, the path that puts us wholly before God, the path that comes from putting our faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and its clarity, and I pray, Father, for those who, are in the, who can hear the sound of my voice, if you would help us to not be drawn into drift. Lord, I pray that we would fight to keep from drifting. Lord, let us stir the waters of our heart on a regular basis so that we do not become stagnant and begin to perform in the flesh. I pray, Father, that you would help us to make sure that all of our obedience comes out of a relationship first, not a legalism, not a mechanical obedience, but one that is is driven and is motivated by our relationship with you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us never try and walk alone. Father, we have burdens, we have troubles, we have problems, we have shames, we have difficulties. And sometimes it can be hard to share those things. And sometimes, Father, because we don't share, because we don't, we don't uh, come to our family at the local church, we don't open these things up, Lord, we, we, tr- we find ourselves alone. And suddenly find ourselves drifting. I pray that would not be true. I pray, Father, we would walk a path that is all cleared away by our relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, you would keep us from drift. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.